Good morning, everyone. Welcome here. Lots of excitement in the air as you come in, and good morning to those of you that just got out of bed. Welcome to halfway through your day, those that got up really early. Glad you are here. Well, uh, for chapel this week, we continue in our series, Alive in the Holy Spirit, and James Enns will be bringing the message today. Uh, tomorrow, instead of service, it is student development uh, chapels, and so what that means for you is that uh, you meet in separately, so ladies, you are in here, men are in parable place, and married families are in the Maxwell Center, so that's a 10 uh they're where? Families are in the dining hall. Excellent. Get a head start on lunch. That's a good strategy. All right. And then uh, Thursday and Friday camp days, but you'll hear a bit more about that in a second. All right. Student union. What? Great applause. Okay, on Thursday night from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to be having games in the Ardak. We're going to be playing Giga Ball and Nine Square. Uh, if you don't know what Nine Square is, neither do I, but you know it'll be a learning experience together as a community team bonding, guys. <laughs> um, that's banking on the hope, though, that the Ardak heating has been fixed. So... And then, secondly, we're having a frontier trip from February 9th to 10th. If you want to go, you have to put down a $10 deposit fee by this Friday. Thank you, Alisa. Uh, next thing, uh, this Wednesday, tomorrow evening, is a ki the kickoff for a Wednesday night worship in a parable place. Sorry. So everyone's welcome to come and worship. We have a time to pray and sing to the Lord. Amen. Good. Thank you so much. And just to let you know... Uh, not this week, not even next week, but the week after is Mental Health Week. And so there's, we just want to uh, let you know that there's a variety of things that will be taking place uh, that week. And uh, that is also the week of our day of prayer. Um, Thursday night, there's going to be a movie night in Parable Place, the movie Inside Out. Friday night, there's a basketball game. So there's lots of things uh, taking place uh, during that week. Um, a week from tomorrow, there is an information meeting uh, about the Christian Formation Program and a seven-week Frontier Lodge experience. And so if that's something that you're interested in, you need to show up at 1145 uh, on, in the boardroom on the second floor. And then uh, our pilots, a couple of our pilot teams were at, uh, at a college, Keanu. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, anyway, uh, our futsal teams played there, and our ladies basketball team played there. They gained great experience from their... Uh, <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. It is true in all of life. So... Life lesson right there. And then uh, this weekend is the Futsal Classic, uh, Pilots Futsal Classic Tournament. There are a boatload of games going on. And so both our men's and women's team, and there's a lot of other teams coming from other uh, colleges. And so 
it's too soon to do homework, so you might as well go and watch a game or two. Yeah, so there you go. Go and support your Prairie Pilots. Mr. President. I'm positive it will be a very, very good weekend in the gym if the heat is on. What's the prospect for that? It's working? Hearts are supposed to arrive today. All right. Let's have a healing prayer service. Uh, good. It will be a lot of fun. I just uh, hope we've got heat so that, um, so that we've got them in our gym rather than... They will be around town uh, with Red Deer College and all of them, so it'll be a good good time. And our futsal people are kind of good. Anyway, um, coming up, I want to mention this. Some of you have heard about it. Some of you may not have, but the first week back in the second term, so March, Ted Lance is pulling together um, a baptism for any of you who have not been but would like to be baptized. I could tell you that this is important. I could tell you this is biblical. I could tell you, but it's also intimidating, right? But it's important to obey. And if you want this opportunity, just contact Ted, figure out what it's about, and uh, he'll help you get through it. And you'll have a lot of fun. But I think it's part of opening up a whole new ceiling for yourself spiritually and personally. So let me encourage you to uh, join in and, and, uh, and be baptized here among your fellow students. Secondly, those of you who are new, you recognize that we're a young community. That means we have babies in our families. This is a good thing, okay? And we like it when babies come to chapel. So I'm just telling those of you who are new going, there was a baby in chapel last week. That's okay. That means there's a mother or a father who is here who couldn't have been here, right, if they'd had to stay out because we don't, don't let babies in. We let babies in. We welcome them. We probably should say maybe sit toward, you know, the edges so that if you need to, you can get out. But we're really happy to have little ones in here crying and squawking and making different noises. It's quite entertaining when the speakers are boring, James. <laughs> <laughs> James is never boring. James is never a baby. I wasn't putting either of those together. <laughs> this series, Moving to James, is going to be stepped into, leaned into with another look at Pentecost and how this is that great hinge in history. I won't steal any of James's thunder. We have a very, very exciting series coming up this whole semester. Um, God has put together, I think, a great roster of people to speak and an excellent uh, sort of series. So let's be in prayer about it. Let's plan to hear from God, and let's learn more about this amazing Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of pausing to hear from you. And so we ask that you would do that. Grant us that great privilege to hear from you. We ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. You want that? <laughs> As our musicians come, just let me give you an overview of what this chapel is going to look like. And if you recall the last one that I did before uh, Christmas, we'll use the same kind of arrangement or arc of service where we're going to intersperse scripture with song. So you already know the posture for song. You stand for that. 
be seated for the reading of Scripture, and we'll put it up on the graphic, what to happen, what's going to happen when. The other thing is, at the end of each Scripture reading, you have a role to play as well, and there's a bit of a call-response here. So the reader will conclude the passage by saying, the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. Good. So just remember that when the time comes. I just want to piggyback on something that Mark Maxwell said about having infants and young babies in our service and combining that with baptism. And if you want your infant baptized, because I come from a tradition that does practice infant baptism, I'd be glad to do that. <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> Mark and I have a strange and wonderful relationship, and we won't say who's who in that one. <laughs> I love him. He's a great, great friend and a great boss to work for. We're going to begin with prayer. And so stand with me, and we see our call to worship here. And let's say this together as we enter into worship. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Remain standing. Oh 
Selected readings from Acts 1 and 2. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come down in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The word of the Lord. Please stand.
A reading from the book of Isaiah. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Arise, shine, 
for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. They shall see, then you shall see, and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of our Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall Build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The word of the Lord. Please stand.
Our third reading is from Ephesians 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Please stand.
Well, let's pray. May the words of my lips, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It was 175 years ago last month, that is last December, that Charles Dickens' most famous work, A Christmas Carol, was first published. Many of you may have watched uh, one of the movie makes or remakes of it over the holidays. From the outset, it was a huge hit. Its initial print run of 6,000 copies sold out the first day, 
and it was followed immediately by a second and third edition, which also sold out very quickly. Dickens wrote the story with a definite purpose in mind. It was 1843. England was in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. The interviews with child laborers who made up part of Britain's underclass of working poor had just been published in a government report on child labor, exposing the daily abuses, meager wages, and horrific working conditions of these children. This was the grim and bitter fruit of the Industrial Revolution. Dickens grew white hot with a reformer's zeal as he read accounts of eight-year-old children dragging coal carts in subterranean passages in the mines, working 11-hour days, young girls working 16-hour days as seamstresses in the 19th century equivalent of sweatshops, sewing dresses for middle-class consumers. The impersonal nature of the manufacturing economy, which treated laborers like so many replaceable cogs in the machine-like process of assembly line work, fueled the fire of Dickens' anger, since he himself knew firsthand, as an 11-year-old child, what it was like to work in such mind-numbing tasks for hours on end. Now, his initial plan was to write a reforming pamphlet entitled, An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. A rather laborious title, not exactly eye-catching, is it? It was to be a biting expose intended to rouse the public to take action. Interestingly, two other gentlemen living in England at the same time Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels read the same government report and responded the way Dickens first intended to. The Communist Manifesto, their shrill call, was for violent revolution as the best way to address the problem of workspace, workplace abuse. It only took Dickens a week to rethink his approach, and he decided instead to cast his arguments in a story and so what might have been a polemic, a harangue, a la Marx and Engels, instead became a story of personal redemption for which audiences hungered. In what can be considered a stroke of providential insight, Dickens understood that telling a story about a new way of being British, of conducting one's business, had a much greater chance of changing people's minds and mobilizing reform then the screeds of angry social criticism calling for institutional overthrow and radical change. Such an approach certainly wasn't original, that is Dickens' approach. God's revelation of his own redemptive plan and purposes in the pages of the Bible are told largely in narrative, and the stories, the true stories, that are told there tend to travel well across cultural, political, and even social boundaries. They have been shown to penetrate the barriers of resistance of the strongest kind and undermine even the most militant opposition. Why? Because they capture our imagination. The British people of the Victorian age called the Christmas Carol a new gospel, and reading it or watching it in dramatic adaptations very soon became a sacred Christmas ritual for the British public. 
The story is well known to most of us. Ebenezer Scrooge, a wealthy businessman who treats his employee, Bob Cratchit, with contempt, goes home after another miserable day at his office to his lonely apartment on Christmas Eve. There he is visited by the ghost of his dead business partner, Jacob Marley, who had passed away five years ago on that very day. In order to offer him a chance to amend his ways, Marley's ghost informs Scrooge that he will be visited by three other spirits or ghosts during the night. The ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Okay, so by now you're wondering if there is a sermon lurking anywhere in what I am saying. <laughs> well, yes, there is. All this has been a lead-up to introducing our community chapel theme for this semester through the three scripture texts which were read to us this morning. And as you've already seen on the graphic, our PowerPoint graphic, our theme is Alive in the Holy Spirit. So while all of scripture bears witness to this theme, it's particularly evident at Pentecost in a new and unique way. The pouring out of the Spirit of Pentecost confirms that a new chapter in God's work of salvation initiated with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is now underway. The kingdom of this age has given way to the kingdom of the age to come. And if the giving of the Holy Spirit is vital to this transformation, this making alive of those who were once dead in their sins, then we need to understand what this means for us who by faith have trusted in King Jesus to give us this life. And like the three spirits of Dickens' story, the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future, I want to use our three scripture passages this morning to act as three visitations of the spirit of Pentecost, past, present, and future. The, these passages form part of a redemptive story except it's not the gospel of 19th century Victorian humanitarian goodwill and self-help. It is the good news of King Jesus coming to bring God's salvation to not only one specific people, the Jews, but through that people to all nations, to you, to me. So let's look at our three passages as three visitations of the spirit of Pentecost. That is the Holy Spirit who makes us alive. But unlike Scrooge, we will encounter them in a slightly different order. We will begin with the Acts account, that is Pentecost past, or the first Pentecost, and then fast forward to Isaiah's account of Pentecost future, or Pentecost fulfilled. And then we'll end up in Ephesians 3, where Paul is describing the Pentecost of the present time. The familiar account of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost is significant on many levels. But I want to draw our attention to just two this morning as we look at that Acts reading from 1 and 2 that Sheena read, us, read to us. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes because Jesus ascends to the Father to take his place of kingship and rule in the throne room of heaven. Acts 1 testified to that event, and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 again reiterates this, calling out at his trial, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus' ascension 
into the heavenly realm, the dimension of reality where God's will and rule are fully exercised was crucial to his being present everywhere in our world, in our dimension of reality, no longer confined by the limitations of time and space as he was during his earthly ministry. Now through the Holy Spirit, he is able to be present everywhere with all believers, with the faithful, but it is the ascension that makes that possible. It is necessary. It kind of brings to mind the, this dates me quite a bit, the dramatic showdown in the very first Star Wars movie, episode four, when Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader are having their clash on the Death, it's not, is it the Death Star? And they're, they're going back and forth, and their laser swords are going back, and it's the evil Darth taunting Obi-Wan, saying that his powers are weaker than they once were. And Obi-Wan replies, you can't win, Darth. You can strike me down. You know the line, right? No. You don't. <laughs> Where have you been? But I will come back more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Right? That's a, that's a great salvation picture. I don't know if George Lucas intended it, but it was great. And then he, he puts down his sword and he offers himself to Darth Vader to strike down. And that's what the cross does. That's exactly what Pentecost is the oath working of. Christ has come back in greater power with greater presence than he ever was during his earthly ministry. So that's the first thing to know. Secondly, Pentecost is not merely about signs and wonders and forms of power evangelism, although it is that, tongues, healings, and so forth. But most importantly, it's about bringing into being a new creation, forging a new people of God, a new way of being Israel, whose life together will, in very distinct ways, begin to enact the life of heaven itself. That is the transforming power of the gospel. And we are given a summary of what that looks like in its early potency right at the conclusion of chapter 2. This new community of Jesus' people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. There was awe at the signs and wonders of the apostles. But again, notice the emphasis on gathering and being visibly together. All believers were together, had everything in common. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Luke is a foodie, and he always likes talking about occasions that bring us together over food. They met in the temple courts. Being alive is a communal reality, not merely a personal one. The Spirit is creating a new people for the praise and glory of God. It's never just Jesus and me. The proclamation... Of, king, of Jesus as king at the outset of the chapter indicates that this new people of God is going to have a global mandate and mission. All the languages of the Roman Empire hear the good news, the truth that Jesus is Lord. What until that time had only ironically been proclaimed by Pilate's inscription above Jesus as he hung on the cross and then spoken by a Roman soldier who presided at Jesus' execution is now going to be proclaimed to all the world and eventually confessed by people from all nations. King Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, 
is Lord. It's a joyful celebration. It is a party. Now, we fast forward to Epiphany future. Not to Epiphany, sorry, wrong season. Uh, well, it's the right season. To Pentecost future in Isaiah 60. And what began as a tiny seedling, a little group of Jesus followers on the backside of the empire, has now burst forth in its glorious fulfillment. Israel's exiles and scattered children will be gathered up and carried home by a loving redeemer. And then foreigners will come, kings and captains of commerce, bringing their wealth as tribute, not as enslaved captives to be paraded and humiliated in front of a conquering people, but as willingly invited as participants who bring gifts out of sheer gratitude to Zion, to Israel. They will bring the best of their lands to build up and beautify Jerusalem. The nations will be drawn to Zion, the place where the anointed conqueror will reign. The servant songs of the earlier chapters in Isaiah now give way to the songs of the anointed sovereign who works salvation when no one else can who brings deliverance to Israel from its oppressors, but then offers that deliverance to all who recognized his lordship. They come willingly from the farthest parts of the globe. The islands, the distant coastlands, Tarshish is mentioned, which would have been on the other outlying end of the empire in Spain, it's believed. Darkness will be replaced by everlasting light and the Lord and the Lord, uh, light of the Lord's presence. Violence will no longer be heard in the land or ruin and destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. All this will come about from the tiny tender shoot that God planted that first Pentecost and the giving of his spirit and the placing of his words in the mouths of the faithful will now uh, come to fruition if, with the enduring certainty of his covenant, faithful presence to be with his newly created people. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who mediates the life of Jesus, abundant life, transforming life, not just for one group, but for all of creation. This is a vision of Pentecost fulfilled. The final words of this jubilant song end with a stamp of its inevitability. I am the Lord, and in time I will do it swiftly. We need to be living in expectation and hope. So what does this mean for Pentecost in the present? What does the spirit of Pentecost mean for us who find ourselves living between its humble beginnings and its glorious conclusion? We look back at that first Pentecost in wonder. We look forward to Pentecost fulfilled in hope. And so we come to our third visitation of the spirit of Pentecost by looking at the Ephesians passage. This, even though it was addressed to a first century church, very much, I believe, speaks to our times. In the short time between the first Pentecost and Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, a matter of some few decades likely, Something entirely unexpected and confounding has taken place. It's safe to say that none of the 12 apostles saw it coming. Paul talked about it, but I don't even think he understood the full ramifications of it during his ministry. And we could sum up this change in the short phrase, guess who's coming to dinner? 
Or guess who showed up at the party? Guess who gate crashed the wedding banquet? It wasn't Owen Wilson or Vince Vaughn. <laughs> it was a whole bunch of Gentiles. All that cool stuff about fellowship, breaking bread, worshiping together back in Acts 2, they were exclusively Jews. But in very short order, first Samaritans and then Romans and Greeks have gotten invited to the party, to the grand banquet. And the Jews are entirely flummoxed by this, right? What, what do we do with this? Peter doesn't know what to do with it. Thank God for the faithfulness of Peter and then Paul, who after Peter's first witness to a Gentile, a Roman soldier no less, now more fully comprehends and can explain that this was God's plan all along. Paul explains to his Ephesian readers that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness to the Jews, but the one by whom the promise is made to Abraham, through you all the people of the earth shall be blessed, are being accomplished. He is God's mystery, now revealed to all people, Jew and Gentile alike, and all through Jesus have access to the promises of full membership in God's new covenant family. We are heirs, he says, citizens with full rights and privileges that come with a standing in a new royal family. We are members of a royal household. We are all part of one body. We are a temple. Paul just loads these metaphors on to get the full impact of what the body of Christ, or what the people of God are to be like. In Christ, we are a new creation, not just as individuals, but as a new people of God a new society, a new community. The, the Germans have a better word for it. It's called Volk, and it's much bigger than just people. It's this larger collective entity where the, the whole is way greater than the sum of its parts. And so we are, a, we are offered a whole new way of being human in this world and thereby bringing God's reconciling love to it. For Paul, reducing the grace of God to individual salvation was unthinkable because it very quickly would have tribalized Christians into ethnic divisions or completely privatized the faith for individuals or whatever little specialized group you want to claim. Such a faith would undermine the spirit of Pentecost, who is the spirit of unity, who is making a new creation for all humanity, from all humanity. This is the miracle of transformation. This is what it means to be alive in the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that Jesus, the mystery of God, has now been revealed to all people, and even the Gentiles are to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. So that Jew and Gentile are now together in a new family, and that family is called the church. This is our calling as the church. God, in his grace and wisdom, has chosen the church to be the mediator of the unsearchable riches of Christ and the manifold wisdom of God to the world. It's Paul's language, not mine. Invariably, this will mean making the kingdom of King Jesus visible to rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms, the power brokers of rival kingdoms and their spiritual masters and earthly institutional counterparts. The church is to be, by its very fact, its very existence, a warning to them that their time is up. That's N.T. Wright. 
the church should make the powers uncomfortable. Paul concludes with a word of encouragement. Our status as God's people given to us in the throne, has given us access to the throne room of heaven with confidence, but it will also provoke the powers to strike back and make God's people suffer. For Paul, the church is never a kind of global abstract body of believers. It's not a theoretical construct that will one day be realized in some future time. For Paul, the church is always local. It is always tangible. It is always made up of real bodies in real time. Believers getting together so that the life of the Spirit is made manifest. Individual Christianity is not an option. We are Christ's body, his temple. Not temples, one temple, and that's a collective. This applies to the community of believers. In this sense, Paul is already saying what third century father of the church, St. Cyprian of Carthage, professed. He said it in Latin. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Now that shakes our modern Protestant sensibilities, doesn't it? But we need to let Paul's words shake us up a little bit. I'm almost done. Then you can lynch me. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> you know, whether it was the infant baptism or now, no salvation. It's like, anyway... <laughs> Think about this, though, right? In the right sense, St. Cyprian was right on. Just like that first Pentecost, the church, in its life of worship, witness, and proclamation, ministry, and so forth, ought to attract many, but it will also attract the attention of the rulers of this world and make them anxious. What is a source of joy for the hungry, for authentic good news, will be for the threatened something fearful and disturbing. There will be blood. But, increasingly, there will be glory, joy, and deliverance. Liberty, as the church, through its faithful presence, bears witness to King Jesus. This is the life of the Spirit, by faith in the saving work of Christ. And so Pentecost is a major event which points to an ongoing theme of God at work in the world to accomplish his saving purposes for his human creatures and, yes, for all of creation. Now, I'm not implying that all of you here today in Prairie Chapel are sort of the equivalent of Scrooge and thus in need of some extraordinary spiritual visitation which will make you amend your lives. It might be better to say that there is something of Scrooge in all of us. The Bible has a good name for that. It's called sin. And we cannot fix or get rid of it on our own. We do need help. It's interesting to note that Scrooge's transformation does not come as an individual, but as he is incorporated into a family. I think Dickens got that right. Sadly and ironically, Dickens himself had more of Scrooge in him in spite of his ability to write such a compelling story about his redemption. In fact, Scrooge may have been something of an alter ego for Dickens. He was a tightwad with his money, hard on his employees, irascible, argumentative with publishers, and at 46 years of age, callously left his wife, who bore him 10 children, to take up with an 18-year-old actress. Writing about Scrooge's transformation did not have the power to change Dickens' lone life for the better. But... Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Pentecost, does save, does transform, does make us into a new creation, 
a new family for the praise and the honor of God. And that's what the, the Holy Spirit does when he makes us alive. And I think as we look at the other chapel uh, speakers and passages throughout the semester, it's just going to be riffs on that. What does the Holy Spirit want to do in us personally? Yes, but collectively to make us into that new family, to make us into that body of believers that will hope for the future, be joyful in the past, but be faithfully loving in the present. That's what we need to practice. That's the spirit of epiphany here. That is our business. The church is our business. The fruit of the spirit is our business. Our fellow believers are our business. That's why Jesus tells his disciples before he leaves them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Let's close together by saying, I think we have it on the graphic here, the prayer that Paul ended that chapter from that passage that Nicole read, because I think it's a suitable conclusion for us. This is, about, this is a prayer for Pentecost presence, so let's, stay it, let's stand and say it together. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us depart in peace to love each other. Amen.